Web3 can either be like a freedom machine or a control machine, depending on how we design it, depending on how we make sure policymaking will be, because the technology can allow us to create egalitarian systems or capitalism on steroids. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. While we're still reeling from disinformation campaigns and trying to figure out what governance around Web 2.0 looks like, the internet is moving on. Web 3 is the latest buzzword in the tech and venture capitalist worlds. And while it's been called the future of the internet, the reality is that in some respects, it is already here. Tokens, blockchain, DAOs, NFTs, these are some of the terms that make up this new ecosystem filled with its own utopian promises and dystopian critics. It's a space that values decentralization, peer-to-peer transactions, and individual data ownership. It purports to challenge the dominance of the tech giants, and some say it will revolutionize finance and banking as we know it. But others think it's a Ponzi scheme, filled with the same irrational exuberance of earlier tech. Like with all new technologies, No one knows yet which way it will land. Will it be a freedom machine or a control machine? That's the question that Sherman Vashamgir asks. She's the author of Token Economy, How the Web3 Reinvents the Internet. She also founded Token Kitchen and Blockchain Hub Berlin and was the director of the Research Institute for Crypto Economics at the Vienna University of Economics. Sherman is steeped in this world, And one of her goals is to make Web3 understandable and accessible to the rest of us, so we can all shape which direction it will go. Here's my conversation with Sherman Vashabgir. So welcome. I'm really excited to talk this through with you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. So just to start, um, how is Web3 different from Web2? What are we we transitioning from here? So... um... The Web3 basically is a back-end revolution. So we're not so much changing what happens in the front end of the internet, but much more how the internet is managed in the back-end and who manages our data. So if we think of the current internet we're using, all our data is managed by private organizations or public organizations who manage our data uh, with their servers. And we have little transparency over what happens with our data. And uh, blockchain networks, as the backbone of the Web3, uh, really revolutionize the way data is managed collectively and transparently. And it's not completely new. The idea of peer-to-peer networks collectively managing files or data is not completely new, but we always need a trusted third parties to to do the last mile of, of trust. And what Bitcoin really succeeded at, the Bitcoin network, was finding a way to come to an agreement of what is true and what is not true. In the, in the case of the Bitcoin network, truth means who holds how many Bitcoins and is this transfer correct or not, right? And the state of what happens in the network is collectively managed by a peer-to-peer network of actors who don't know each other, but who all collectively manage the data. And uh, so in theory, we have much more transparency, uh, but transparency can also come 
at the price of privacy. So I'm very happy that you invited me to this uh, session because uh, talking about the kind of pros and cons of transparency uh, is also very, very an important policy decision. Is it fair to say that blockchain is the operating system almost of these other things that can be done on this backend? Or how, what's the metaphor for the blockchain here? There is not one blockchain or the blockchain, right? Um, so I think we have blockchain networks. And uh, so uh, people use the word blockchain to describe different aspects of blockchain networks. One is the peer-to-peer -peer network of computers that collectively manages the ledger, the ledger of transactions of who did what and when. And this ledger very often is also uh, kind of referred to as the blockchain, right? And then you have specific blockchain networks, but there are different blockchain networks. So there is not a blockchain. There is the Bitcoin blockchain network. There is the Ethereum blockchain network. There are so many other blockchain networks. And many of these blockchain networks have different purposes. Um, so the Bitcoin network's purpose is to transfer peer-to-peer -peer Bitcoins, peer-to-peer, -peer, right? I think it is uh, important to understand that the Web3 as opposed to the web two is a collectively managed web where, um, where the basic infrastructure is also collectively managed by, uh, completely public networks like, um, the Bitcoin network or the, the, the Ethereum network where anyone, uh, without permission of a third party can join the network and become verifier of the network or a miner uh, securing transactions in the network, making the network safe, thereby earning network tokens, whether it's Bitcoin tokens or Ethereum tokens. They are kind of, these are the reward mechanism for people who contribute to the network security, right? So um, it's a paradigm shift from private comp company corporation like Twitter or Facebook buying servers or, or um, renting servers on which they manage the data of their clients, right? We, for example, have uh, the Steemit network. It was a decentralized uh, or a peer-to-peer -peer social network with its own Steemit blockchain, where the data was collectively managed in the backend. And uh, all transactions on that social network were public, very similar to to Twitter, right? Um, but uh, you could get rewarded uh, with a network token for posting posts based on kind of the amount of likes that you got. So um, who does what and when was transparent or is transparent in the Steemit network or, or Web3-based social network in the Web2. We have no idea and no control over what happens with our data. We have to trust these institutions and what they tell us, what they do with the data. And uh, very often we see that uh, their ha corruption happens and what they say is not what they do. And this is something we can prevent in the Web3. We have uh, a kind of a transparency by default, but uh, the devil is in the details. We don't need the same level of transparency for every decentralized application. And as we uh, start to understand the different token or DAO applications or, or Web3 applications, we need to start to understand how we shield the transactions while having the kind of privacy by design that we need. Yeah. So you've just signposted the other two elements of this I want to touch on before getting to that privacy and transparency piece. So so tokens, you've mentioned tokens a number of times. Um, what's the role of a token in, in a blockchain? 
Okay, so over the past few years, we've heard a lot about cryptocurrencies because like kind of the Bitcoin network was the first blockchain network, the f- kind of first instance of the Web3 uh, in this sense. And so we thought that uh, tokens can only be currencies. But now we're seeing that we can take tokens, uh, a blockchain token, and represent it kind of uh, with a real asset. Um, for example, a real currency, a dollar, like Tether, right? Or back it with gold or uh, represent, have a token that's like a digital ter- certificate that's collectively managed uh, that represents uh, a, a stock or a bond or, for example, uh, a deed of real estate or a piece of art. Um, and are those collectively non-fungible tokens then? So the cryptocurrencies are, are the currencies are the fungible and the, the assets are the yes. non-fungible? Yes. Is that the distinction? So um, I think... Uh, we're now learning very often when we talk about non-fungible tokens today, NFTs, we associate it uh, with, with art tokens because they were the first kind of uh, use case that, that got a lot of media attention. And uh, many people think that NFTs are only art NFTs, but really any token that has a kind of special property attached to them, any token that is not uh, something like money, that's completely fungible, that has special property, uh, uh, a real asset or a digital asset with special properties is an NFT. So the most interesting tokenization use cases that we will see coming or already see coming uh, are non-fungible tokens. It's um, like a token can represent different rights. It's a token is basically a smart contract uh, that's collectively managed by a blockchain network. And um, it's a special type of smart contract that we refer to as a token contract. Right. And uh, this uh, this smart, smart contract or token contract can assign different rights to a token uh, a value like a property right. Right. Uh, yeah. This costs so much um, or um, uh, so it can assign property rights to a token, but it can also assign uh, access rights or um, a management rights, or even voting rights. So I think one of the biggest challenges that we have today is to understand that a token is like a programmable, it's more than programmable money, it's a programmable rights management tool. It's still hard to understand the different things we can do with a token and how versatile we can program this thing. So we're in a very, very early stage of understanding the different use cases that tokens can have, uh, from pure access rights to pure management rights to pure voting rights to pure ownership rights of both physical and digital goods. But we can easily merge kind of this rights management. But this is where people get confused because in the, ba- in the, kind of in the past, I would have like money in my purse to pay for something. And then I would have, for example, a certificate of ownership of a stock somewhere else. And then I would have a key that would uh, uh, allow me, a physical key that allow me access right to my Airbnb. But now I can maybe uh, have uh, a token that represents the key and uh, the ownership right and the access right at the same time, right? And, and, And this is very often... I think people still uh, have difficulties to understand the new paradigm of what tokens can represent. So if all of that can be embedded in a token, what's the need for a decentralized autonomous organization? Where does that where does it pick up from where the things that are embedded in a token leave off? Does that is that the right way of framing that thinking about this? 
Yes. So our challenge currently is, um, and it's not a new thing, right? So every, every time a new technology comes around, people think this is now the magic wand that will magically solve all our problems that we have because this is a magic technology, right? And I think it's a kind of wishful thinking because technology is just a tool. Take, for example, a knife. I always talk about the knife. It was not invented to kill people, I think. The knife was invented as a tool to cut stuff. And any technology, like the internet, like a computer, you know, uh, can be used to do uh, various sets of things. And what we do with technology depends on us. So in my work, I'm trying to make the Web3 and its potentials, but also its dangers, <laughs> accessible, kind of uh, communicate what it is and what we can do with it, but also what the potential dangers are if we don't apply it right. But what is right and wrong is always a social contract, a social consensus. Like um, the good thing about the Web3 is it's a place, it's a socioeconomic operating system that allows us to organize ourselves even more better and more autonomously that we could do in the web one and two. We already started using the internet of the first generations as a socioeconomic operating system and organize ourselves, right? Flash mobs are a very good use case for using the internet to organize yourself or any type of social network and, and et cetera, et cetera. But in the web three, we can start to form a more decentralized and to, depending on how we design them, autonomous organizations. They can be more or less autonomous, but we can have decentralized or, uh, organizations that are uh, executed by smart contracts. But the question of what is the purpose of my DAO, right? My centralized organization. What uh, kind of, what are the ethical standards I want to build this on? What are the political, the governance rules? Depends on me and the people who join my organization, right? That's not embedded in the technology. I choose how I want to kind of, um, what type of tokens will steer that DAO because we use tokens uh, to give ownership rights and access rights and voting rights to the people in the DAO based on the purpose of the DAO. And how I design the token governance rules depends on me and the purpose of what I want to do or you and the purpose of what you want to do. But uh, we can basically do any token design. We can create dictatorships uh, 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 in the Web3 right? Uh, decentralized organizations in the form of uh, dictatorships or completely direct democracy, mm. you know. Can you give some examples of some of the DAOs that exist right now, just so we can get a clearer sense of sort of that spectrum? Well, the first DAO is the Bitcoin network. The Bitcoin okay. network is the first and truly probably the most autonomous and decentralized organization because there is no centralized foundation. There is no one single institution that controls it as opposed to the Ethereum network that, that has a foundation controlling a lot of the governance, etc. We have power structures also in the Bitcoin network, but they're less formalized and maybe more dangerous for that because less controllable than maybe in the Ethereum network. So I think DAO, decentralized autonomous organization, very often is not an appropriate description for many of the organizations out there on the Web3 with more centralized management or government uh, governance. So um, 
depending, as I said, on the organization, it can be uh, more or less decentralized, more or less autonomous, you know, they have more or less power imbalances. And this political aspect of power imbalances, just because it's like, it's a Web3 network doesn't make it more inclusive, right? <laughs> um, like who has the voting rights in the network? Are the voting rights proportional to the amount of tokens you own? Well, then it's less a kind of uh, democracy. It's then it's more a plutocracy, right? Um, and uh, how, what are the power structures? Are only five people in the network out of five million who own 10% of the tokens? But the level of decentralization or the level of autonomy and autonomy refers to the fact of how autonomous can can a single user be and how dependent am I on a centralized party, right? Very often in, in, in an anonymous network where anyone can create a wallet without identification, you can't have one person with one vote, which is why we have this plutocratic systems very often. But we need to ask ourselves, is this what we want? Because if we continue to go down this path, we will have capitalism on steroids. Is that what we want? Some people might say yes, some people might say no. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned power a number of times. I mean, people follow rules in institutions because of power structures that have are embedded in them and have been norms that are follow from those power structures. Why do people follow rules inside a DAO? What's the incentive structure to make people follow a rule? Well, it depends on the network, right? Is the purpose of the network to have peer-to-peer -peer value transfer, like uh, the Bitcoin network? Or is uh, the purpose of the network to have peer-to-peer -peer, um, social network like Steemit? I, I need a different incentive system based on the different type of purpose, because the way to cheat the system is very different in a, in a payment network than in, in if, if I want to reward quality content, I have to think about what does quality content mean? You know, what are the, the indicators for quality content and how do I want to reward it? So we're still in a very early stage of understanding how to design tokens depending on the purpose of the network, right? And how to properly incentivize the people who reward, uh, contribute to the uh, purpose of the network in a way that it is sustainable long-term without forming uh, imbalances, too many imbalances over time. Currently, unfortunately, I have to say that we still don't have too many best practices, um, but we do have um, some emerging interesting use cases with good value propositions, good aspects, and we can learn from that for the next, next social networks that are designed. Absolutely. And, and like you said, there's sort of the space is moving very quickly and new things are being built constantly and um, money is starting to flood in and attention. Um, and it in many ways feels like a similar moment to kind of the early days of Web 2.0, where nobody knew quite what it was going to be. People were trying a lot of different things. Some things are working, some weren't. Um, but some things went kind of wrong, too, with Web 2.0 in the ways you've pointed out. And I mean, you've kind of flagged that we're might be in a mo there's a concern here that we could just see capitalism on steroids being embedded in this new system, or it could be something else. And and 
one one thing I really that struck me a distinction you made is that one of the main challenges that came out of that kind of flood of money and attention on Web 2.0 was an algorithmic bias, and you're concerned that um, Web 3 might have a protocol bias in it. Yes. What do you mean by that? What's the difference between those two things? And what's your concern here on a protocol bias? If you have an algorithm that is designed by, for example, um, a, a software algorithm that detects human faces and tries to identify like kind of patterns in human faces. Um, if we uh, realize that, oh, Unfortunately, and this happened, right? We all know this use case. Uh, the, the first uh, pattern recognition algorithms uh, for uh, face recognition would very often mistake people of color with apes, right? Um, so that was a bias in the algorithm, which was created by the people programming the algorithm that uh, did this com like automatic re face recognition. And you could easily change it but you first had to realize that you had this bias in the algorithm and then this centralized institution, Google said, okay, we, we don't want this, right? So here we, we throw money at this problem and we'll fix it, right? The problem in a Web3 network is um, uh, the, the rules of this uh, network uh, are kind of the constitution of a large group of people, right? It's not a centralized, uh, centrally owned uh, institution that has management power. So if uh, we want to change the rules of the, of the Bitcoin protocol, everyone in the Bitcoin network has to agree, right? And uh, there will be an upgrade to the network uh, protocol rules and people can join this upgrade or not. Uh, once you have a bias in the protocol, it's really hard to get rid of this protocol bias because you need large consensus of all network participants to change the network rules. And we know from political science, we know from, uh, if we look at history, that uh, making amendments to uh, current um, um, laws of a society, and these are internet-based societies, takes time and money, and it's never perfect because not everyone agrees, right? So protocol bias will have even more long-lasting effects than kind of algorithmic bias uh, that we had in the algorithms that centralized institutions of the Web2 were making. I don't know if I made my point clear. <laughs> absolutely. absolutely. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I feel I'm using too many words to describe what I mean, so yeah. So I've seen some polling that says that mar that shows that marginalized communities are using these sets of technologies and cryptocurrencies specifically disproportionately to other communities, in part because of the biases in the traditional banking system, like we the biases that have excluded them from traditional institutions. So they're looking to these new forms of organization, these new forms of currency, and yet we have the situation where these technologies are being built by a very similar set of people as built our previous digital infrastructure. Um, largely well-off people in the West. Is there a disconnect there? And are you concerned about who is building and making the rules for this new system? Yes. Yes, I am. Um, I'm very concerned because I think uh, even 
it's not only a kind of geographical bias that we have, as you say, but it's also kind of a knowledge bias. So I think we need to create uh, very often um, the developers in the teams are purely computer scientists or physicists or math people, you know, uh, people come with a STEM background. And obviously this is necessary, but, um, you know, these uh, blockchain networks, uh, somebody once said, is uh, they're like the railroads of the next generation uh, internet, right? And, but uh, like how we build the railroad is a technological question, but where we build it to, it's a governance question, right? So uh, the engineer doesn't decide where the line goes. This is like a political question, like which cities will be connected by a railroad is not a technological question. What do we want to do with these uh, things is not a technological question. One of the biggest problems that I see is that uh, in many of these blockchain networks, whether it's like a Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network or the Ethereum network or Polkadot or Cosmos, or you have a lot of engineers, but you don't have enough political scientists, social scientists, behavioral scientists. You don't have enough. I mean, it's the token economy. They're creating networks that have their own monetary system. Like the network token can be seen as a currency of this distributed internet tribe, right? A DAO is like a distributed internet tribe. And uh, the currency of that distributed internet tribe is the network token that is issued based on network performance, right? So what we need is people who understand macroeconomics, microeconomics, etc. Because you're creating an economy, you're creating a digital economy, so you need economists. That you will have power structure, so you need political scientists. So we don't only have a geographical kind of issue uh, with the people who are building this new generation internet, yes, is again, very Western oriented, um, mostly, uh, not only, right? So, uh, but we also have like, we need much more inclusion, not only of the geographical East or South or whatever you might call it, but also of different disciplines. Otherwise, we just create a technology without soul. You know, so without soul and potentially without democracy or prioritizing certain rights or proper governance or, and look, I, I'm, I sit on that other side and I, I work in this governance space on the social and social science perspective. And I have to say, like, um, part of it is because the community of development in this space feels exclusionary in a way. Like this feels like a kind of like you like you call it a uh, technology driven gold rush by people just trying to build things to make money and like that doesn't feel like to me as someone from the outside like a place that is open to a conversation about democracy and governance and ethics and all these things it is i, I see it the same way but the problem is also that social scientists don't see that they need to learn how to code because you cannot pretend that the internet never happened. We're teaching people in first grade how to read and write and do math, but we're not teaching them how to code and it's 2022. So we already, we have that bias in our teaching protocols, right? And so we have a whole classes of people who go to university and they're like, oh, I'm a social scientist. I don't know computers. I'm like, you you know, you need to learn that. That needs to be in your curriculum. But then like they like to come in 10 years and finger point to the bad techies who did it wrong. 
you know, so it's it's your duty to understand what the Web3 is and start to be part of the narrative. But many social scientists can't because they never learned it at school and they think they don't have to do it. And they think that somebody has to come knocking at their door and ask them very politely and pay them a whole lot of money for 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 giving their expertise. You know, that's not how it works. You want to change the system. You have to understand how the system works. And this is your duty. And then you have to be part of the narrative. And if you don't do it, don't come complaining in 10 years, right? Oh, I, I couldn't. Yeah, I agree. But it has to go both ways because the the exactly. the, the bar for participation can't very in high. A, a system, yes. but it can't, it has to be lower. Like it can't be being a coder. Yeah, but this is a protocol bias of our educational system. So yes, the tech scene should be more inclusive, but come on, you know, <laughs> just go there. It goes both ways. Yes, I agree. And more people need to meet in the middle on this stuff. I agree. Yeah. So one of the reasons I was really happy that you invited me one of, is because also why I write my book. And um, I, I, like the way I wrote the book was intended to include, you know, people who are far from technology or don't understand the web, how it works. I mean, the book is also available online. So it's not about people buying my book, about people making an effort to understand what the Web3 is, to understand how they can contribute to the Web3 to make the Internet a better place for all of us. So just on that final note, then, um, what does this look like if Web3 is built in a way that prioritizes the kinds of things you're talking about, about autonomy, decentralization, democratic participation? What, what's that future look like, from your view, if it's done right? I don't know. It can go both ways. We can create utopia or dystopia. Utopia can mean different things to different people. You know, who am I to say what is good? I can just say that, you know, we can create a complete comp control state. Uh, if we, unfortunately, the EU is doing, uh, is passing very bad legislation on that, where they're basically creating a laws that, that force everyone to be super transparent about everything uh, in the Web3. Is that what we want? We keep criticizing China for their scoring system and uh, that they're like monitoring everyone. So, you know, um, the Web3 can e either be like a freedom machine or a control machine, depending on how we design it, depending on how we make sure policymaking will be, because the technology can can be super transparent or it can come with privacy by design embedded. The technology can allow us to create egalitarian systems uh, or kind of um, capitalism on steroids. So anything is possible and we're still in a quite early stage, quite, not too early anymore, but it's really time to come and shape the narrative. That was my conversation with Sherman Vashamgir. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Huntberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Avi Raheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week. <laughs>